I'm feeling a little uneasy today. Um, a little, um, wondering about being self-revelatory, perhaps. Although I have been in the past in many ways, but for some reason, just to let you know, <laughs> I think there are some things that I will say that might not sound that they have any charge, but for me, they do. <laughs> so I'm just letting people know my state of mind right now. In Sashin, where things have come up, and uh, as they always do, and usually, um, and I have made a vow to not spiritually bypass but to actually try to embody what's there. So that's, that's the backstory. So I, I found, um, surprisingly, during this practice period, um, as we, uh, we studied the teachings of the Lotus Sutra and we talked about uh, all the world is medicine, that I was feeling that they seemed kind of too abstract for me or sometimes too idealistic. And my inner, my inner cynic appeared. And when that happens, um, you stop opening sometimes to the understanding that may right, be right before you. And that very resistance actually is a clue that you need to listen or that I need to listen anyway, and I need to delve in more. So um, I had a funny title for this at one point, um, which embodied my cynical self. And it was a quote from Sarah Palin from one of her, <laughs> one of her um, vice presidential talks. She said, how's all that hopey, changey stuff working out? <laughs> and that kind of embodied how I felt about the teaching of the heart sutra. <laughs> but I can't stop there, right? That would be bypassing, making a joke, um, you know, saying, well, we all talk about all this airy, fairy, love and compassion and whatever. What about, what about down here on the ground in the front line? So I decided to investigate um, a little bit. And I investigated my own relationship with the, with the Lotus Sutra from when I first heard it and studied it. When I first studied, um, when I first, uh, what would I say, crawled into Green Gulch, um, it was after um, a murder of a dear friend whose body I found, um, stabbed to death and near her baby's crib. And I was just found out that I was pregnant at the time. And so I figured I had to do something and I'd heard something about Zen and whatever. And so I made my way to Green Gulch. And there I met Reb Anderson. Now, some of you know Reb well, and some of you may not know him at all, but Reb, especially in his glory days, was beautiful. He would just look like a God or a Buddha. And he would wear flowing, colorful robes. Each time it would be a blue robe or a red robe or whatever. And he'd float into the zendo and kind of sit on the platform with all his colorful robes. And there was always a lot of ceremony. They did a lot of extra things in the ceremonies that we don't do here. To make it more and more, they had, and of course they had an incense burner thing and whatever. At any rate, I uh, immediately fell for it. It was going to be the answer that this light emitting, colorful, beautiful person 
sitting there so stably, smiling, so seemingly accepting that that, that it was going to save me. And so I developed an ongoing relationship with Reb and Green Gulch and did a lot of practice periods and things there. And what I, my experience of practice in those early days was, I would, it was magical practice. I guess it's like Pracheka Buddha practice where you don't really understand anything, but you sit down there in the comfort of that zendo and your mind blows up. And so I would have these, all of these Kensho experiences, I would have every time I walked out in the yard or the garden, I would see the flowers and see the dew on the grass and see the colors. And I would just have these hyper, my, my sense of my sensual, uh, my senses were heightened and I would see in a way that I hadn't seen before. And it, and it managed to make me feel safe. Um, and even safe enough eventually to experience, re-experience the trauma in the Zendo and not, and cry, but not fall apart. So I believed, I was a believer, right? And from that, those first wild moments of, you know, these random enlightenment, little bits of pieces that we call them Kenshos, um, which of course got me caught at first. But then the actual experience, not of that, but of, but of the actual being next to the crib with my friend and saying goodbye, I could actually do that. So, so it was more than just my initial falling in love with the trappings and the ceremony and the beauty of it all was being safe and being able to actually experience fully what had been really preventing me from uh, living my life in a in a in a in a uh, easeful and productive way. So this, but. Um, Reb, of course, was more than that, and he was quite skillful. And one day uh, when I was in um, Dokusan, I told him about one of these great awakenings. I don't even remember what it was anymore because, you know, you can have these things, they pass and whatever. And he looked at me, um, and it was a story, a whole story about how I understood something. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, that was a great story. Now, why don't you go back and sit in the Zendo and come back tomorrow with another story that explains that same phenomenon. Ah, so he said, get your feet on the ground and um, uh, get your feet on the ground and, and be here. No, you, this is the end of the part where you're enthralled. This is the end of the part where I only say nice things. This is the time when I say, sit down. So um, ultimately then, so that was my experience with that. And, um, and sort of that, that remnant of that Shravaka practice, that whatever the seeking enlightenment or experiences practice, um, was there, uh, but I uh, switched to Zen centers at some point for lots of reasons and met Sojin. And Sojin, in his first, uh, early on in my meeting with him, after I had kind of come to him with some of these experiences I'd had and so forth, Sojin said, you just need to sit right down here. You don't go to any of these women's retreats or you know, other practice places or whatever. What you need to do is be here. I wanna see you here. Figure out how many days a week you can come. I'll, I'll see you here, stay here. So he kind of, they kind of saw my practice, uh, which was whatever name you wanna give it, 
loving Zen, being in love with Zen, um, having a transference relationship with the teacher, um, they saw that and they said, no, <laughs> Jerry, you're on the wrong track. Not in a harsh way. It was never a harsh way. It was just like Reb said it in a playful way. And when, when I, I was thinking today about this and I was, I was thinking uh, about Sojin and I, this song came to mind, but it's just a remnant, you know, it was, Hey, hey, you, you, get off of that cloud. Hey, hey, you, you, get off of that cloud. We're running around all over town. Anyway, that's what it felt like. And I think that's my tendency, you know. And, and they saw it and they fostered me. And so that's kind of my experience of this journey from Shravaka, Pracheka Buddha, whatever, to something, this may be a mix of all three, but actually coming to practice. And it took 12 years, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> I'd say, I have to say, I did enjoy being in love with practice. It was really wonderful. And the, and the spiritual bypass was great. But I, <laughs> I'm sorry to say it didn't last. So that's my experience of my journey through what is not the Lotus Sutra, but my life, and coming and putting that in the context of how I received the Lotus Sutra. So, um, heck, the rest of this is going to be boring, I think. Um, <laughs> so I, but I started feeling um, when we went. When we were studying the Lotus Sutra, as I say, I started feeling a resistance, some oppositional thing going on. So here, so this is this is where I got. So I get the, the Shravakas or the listeners or the disciples of the teacher are limited by their dependence on a teacher or the Dharma and attached to doing things right so that they can achieve personal liberation or nirvana and thus are self-centered. I get that the Pracheka Buddhas took the express train to personal nirvana and didn't care about helping others. But the actual way that we get through these lesser vehicles to embody the Bodhisattva ideal seems elusive for me when reading the Lotus Sutra. There are a lot of kind of Wizard of Oz special effects, you know, flower petals dropping, golden stupas, doors opening to wondrousness, beams of light coming out of people's faces, giant tongues appearing to tell the, you know, all of that stuff that I, when I was in love with practice, I was in love with that aspect. And I just accepted that. It just seemed wonderful. <laughs> uh, but for me, as I say, um, so, so, so I could, so I went back um, to thinking about the Lotus Sutra in in terms of what 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 was, it, what was it that was eating at me, you know, from my history, from my understanding, what was what was going on, and um, so I it just sort of this is the cliff notes of the of the Lotus Sutra. So in the beginning of the beginning of the Lotus Sutra, Shakyamuni tells Shariputra. The wisdom of the Buddhas is profound and, and, and incalculable. Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas cannot achieve this wisdom. When Shariputra asked to hear the teaching, the Buddha said, but when Shariputra asked him in response to this, to hear the teaching, the Buddha said, cease, cease, no need to speak. My Dharma is subtle and hard to imagine. Those of overwhelming pride, if they hear it, shall surely neither revere it nor believe it. So it kind of sounds like, well, I have this secret gift. It saves all beings, and you, you're, not, you're not ready for it. <laughs> you know, Shravakas, forget about it. You guys have your own experiences. This place is not for you. That, that's, how it was, that's how I was feeling it. Um, 
But then a bit, a bit later, in the same chapter, he says the opposite. All of you knowing now that the Buddha, the teachers of the ages, in accord with what is peculiarly appropriate, have recourse to expedient devices, need have no more doubts or uncertainties. Your hearts shall give rise to great joys. Since you know, you, you know that you yourselves shall become Buddha, needless to say, needless to say, I was confused. In, one, in, two, in a couple of paragraphs, he went from go away to everybody come and hear it. So that, that's too fast. <laughs> Certainly too fast in a conversation with one of his disciples. So that didn't feel real. And then the rest of the sutra talks about how everyone can become awakened if a Buddha teaching them can discern the skillful means by which to convince them that they're a Buddha. Once they get that, that they may be a Buddha, they have hope <laughs> and faith, and they hear the true teaching. But they don't really say, again, what is that effort? So I'm going to tell you something. But then what? Oh, say, so, okay, so I can. Okay, we all can. But then what? Do we just come and sit? Could be. So I was struggling with all of this, not knowing how I, as a recovering shravaka, <laughs> could actually move along the path, really get it. Maybe I'm not really getting it. Maybe I'm one of these people who can't hear it. You know, what's, what's going on? And then I remembered that I had ordered a book, which I'll just show you, some months ago and put it on the shelf and I noticed it. One of these, one of these synchronicity things by Thich Nhat Hanh called Opening the Heart of the Cosmos Insights in the Lotus Sutra. So I greedily, you can see all the little post-it notes. <laughs> I greedily dove in and um, the rest is history. So um, I, I started to find, I started to get some of the seeds that I needed to begin to get past my resistance and begin to penetrate what, what felt murky to me. I just couldn't see a way. The way was blocked. He begins by discussing the three vehicles again, um, the teaching of the Shravakayana. He says, are the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and the Three Dharma Seals, and they're taught to help people free themselves from delusion and suffering. The fruit of, the, of this path is nirvana or, or extinction. But this is just what he says, but, a big but, but this is just the first part of liberation. And it's a skillful means for practice. So, so that first, that first feeling of uh, letting go of disappearing in zazen. Um, that first one is just a warm up, right? That's what he's saying. It's just a warm up. You're not there. That's just extinction. And he says, true nirvana is only possible in the here and now when we're able to get in touch with the ultimate dimension of reality. We do not have to extinguish ourselves in order to reach nirvana. When we get in touch with our true nature, our ultimate dimension, we are freed from fears of existence and non-existence. We know samsara and nirvana are just distinctions in the realm of historical dimensions. And no such distinction exists in the ultimate dimension. As a bodhisattva, assured of Buddhahood, we ride joyfully on the waves of birth and death, abiding fearlessly in samsara to help guide others to liberation. He continues, in order to touch the ultimate dimension, we have to transcend the conventional notion of same and different, 
coming and going, inside and outside, above and below, before and after birth. Well, this sounds a little bit like the Lotus Sutra, right? We, <laughs> we're back at, we're back at um, something happens. We get this experience of the ultimate and we're riding on the waves and we're back in that, in, in that land that seems a little unreal. So I had to read more. <laughs> so this is where he kind of starts getting me, starts catching me um, with some helpful seeds. He suggests that we first have to look deeply into the historical dimension, which is defined as that is, is our own experience over time or, an ex, or, a rec, uh, or a historical record of the phenomenon over time. Even after we have an enlightenment experience, an experience of oneness or bliss, we cannot rest there. Well, I certainly learned that. Thich Nhat Hanh says the ultimate goal of our practice and studies is to be able to touch the true nature of reality with our mindfulness. So uh, he repeats that being able to leave behind the world of historical dimension and enter the world and enter the ultimate dimension isn't easy. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, for a long time, we've been accustomed to perceiving reality only in terms of the process of history, in terms of time and space. So when we try to look into the true face of ultimate reality, it's very, very difficult for us. So that's really interesting because it is true, isn't it? When we have just what I was doing here today, I was looking at a mental state and I looked at history and I told myself the story of the history. So I had an understanding of, on a certain level, I had an understanding of why a suffering person comes and how they can get drawn to shravaka practice and, and um, want to get rid of their suffering and maybe even do that. So that's the historical perspective. But he is saying, that's not it. That's not it, he says. We have to transform our way of looking. What he means is that we have to go from the realm of birth and death to a realm of no birth and death to realize our Dharma body is indestructible. He then talks about a personal experience that he had when he was in Helmet in, um, in Vietnam they would go do walking meditation outside. And he came upon a beautiful gold leaf. And he was enamored with it. You know, he had that experience of the beautiful gold leaf. And then he felt himself unwilling to walk anymore. He had a, he had a resistance to going on because there were all these beautiful leaves. And he was going to disturb this idyllic picture of beautiful leaves by walking. And then he said, staring further, focus my, focusing my mindfulness on the leaf, seeing beyond this iteration of the leaf. But looking into the ultimate dimension, we can see that the leaf is only pretending to be born, to exist for a while and to grow old and die. The teaching of interdependence and no self reveals to us the true unborn and, un and undying nature of all phenomena. And then he goes on to bring it closer to maybe home for us. He continues, you may think that your mother has passed away, but her passing was just a pretense. And one day, when causes and conditions are sufficient, she will reappear in one form or another. If you have insight enough, you will be able to recognize your mother in other forms. We need to look deeply into all those we love and recognize their true nature. When someone we love passes away, we feel great sorrow. And when we believe we lost a person, and then we believe we lost a person, but ultimately nothing is lost. That, that 
this is starting to, this was starting to juggle my consciousness because I, I, um, I remember after my dad died, he would periodically um, be in the back of my car when I was driving. That's one experience for me that, you know, and then, and then when my sister died, I kept all of her clothes, even though she was five foot 10, <laughs> whatever, I put them on and I had my sister. So that feels very real that my sister never died and my mother never died and my father never died. But knowing that and thinking about that and really getting that in the moment, that's the hard work. It's easy to say, let go of it. Your mother's not really dead. That's not the work though. The work is being in that, right? And not cutting off the feeling of the loss, not dismissing the loss, because that's, I would call that more Shravaka <laughs> or maybe Pacheka Buddha. Not dismissing the loss as, oh, everything is impermanent. Going through that and noticing that and looking for your mother or looking for Sojin. Feeling Sojin, he's still here. That's the hard work because you have to go through the pain. And that felt more real to me than, you know, flowers falling and golden Buddhas. That felt like it was opening something. Um, so, and then he generalizes and says, uh, when we look deeply enough into any phenomenon, a pebble, a drop of dew, a leaf, a cloud, we recognize the three treasures, the three Dharma seals of impermanence, no self, and interdependence. In this way, we can discover true nature. I think, um, Uh, I think he's kind of instructing us that this study or this practice is always there, everywhere. We don't have to be looking anywhere for it. It's everywhere. So all we have to do is go outside, walk in the garden, do anything, really, wash the dishes mindfully, then the whole, then the seals are there, right, with us all the time, if we're mindful enough to be there. So he continues, we have to use mindfulness in order to touch the ultimate dimension. When we notice a yellow leaf underfoot walking meditation, it's an opportunity to look, to look deeply in the nature of no coming, no going. When we breathe mindfully, we're in touch with our breath and body, and we already feel different from before. Using mindfulness, everything appears more clearly. When we practice mindfulness in our daily activities, working, gardening, cooking, washing dishes, greeting guests, we are in touch with the phenomenal world very deeply, much more deeply than when we're not mindful. So in Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching, this mindfulness is the central element of transformation. This mindfulness is the central element the central teaching that he takes. And I'll, talk, I'll say a little bit more. In his, because he has a chapter then on the light of mindfulness. He reminds us that when we become skillful in concentrating our minds on objects of, on objects of minds or on our mind, we begin to recognize that we too exist in the ultimate dimension and can touch our own ultimate nature and spiritual power. We can see that we have a source of light in our own consciousness in our, and our own understanding increases. Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to see that, in fact, the Buddha is none other than the light of mindfulness. That's pretty radical. The Buddha is nothing other than the light of mindfulness. Seems radical to me. Uh, and yet not. <laughs> and, not and, and yet, of course. Right? Of course, lightness, awareness, seeing, seeing how it is. But that takes shining the light 
it takes focused and very dedicated and uh, and it takes it takes the mindfulness of every action it requires the mindfulness of every action it's possible just like saying saving all beings but how to how is that how is that that that's the work that's I wanted to have the work I wanted out of it what do I okay what what okay want if I want to go if I want to deepen if I want to more embody the bodhisattva ideal if I wanted to really really embody that I really have to work hard you know I there there's a there's a, there's at least for me you know, maybe the rest of you don't I don't know, maybe you can do it without any effort but um so that that's kind of uh, and and the other the other um analogy he looks he talks about is um the jewel in the uh, atamsaka atamsaka yeah sutra, sutra um with the indra's net that there's this jewel and shines all around the world and it, you know that kind of light so that light is not just our light but our light is part of that universal intricate net of lighting so we join that when we cultivate our mindfulness and turn our own and, and allow our own light to come through so Okay, very close. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so he he goes on uh, in talking about the never disparaging uh, Buddha and says, not only did his mindfulness cover the infinity of the Buddha's lifespan, but that his sense organs had been purified and that he could see deeply and understand how the six, the six sense organs produce the six kinds of consciousness and there was no more confusion, no more delusion in his perception of things. Basically, he's describing the transformation of consciousness through mindfulness leading to self-awareness. He's talking about using mindfulness to rewire our consciousness. Well, that's not a new thing. On the other hand, how often do we actually, we, how are we actually focused and aware you know, of course, we see and learn and we can see um, habitual behaviors, conditioned responses and so forth. But what do we do with those? Do we just say, oh, that's my habitual response? Do we look at the historical dimension? Do we look at the coming and going? It's actually a complicated thing to rewire. And most people I know have a really hard time, you know, my husband cannot forgive his mother. He cannot forgive her. He goes back to when he's five years old and she, he heard her talking to somebody and she was having an affair with another man. That is his story of his mother. He knows it's a story, he knows it's historical and he can't let go. And a lot of people have, that's a kind of dramatic one, right? But still, we all have those stories that justify us in our behavior. I do this because, 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 and this is why, and I'm conditioned that way. Oh, I understand now. It's like going to a psychiatrist and or a psychologist and you know talking a lot and nothing changes. You just tell them all your stuff. They say yes, that's true. They may make some suggestions, but a lot of people go into analysis for years and uh, come out the same. But they've told everything. They've talked about all their stuff. But that's all. So this is taking us to a place where understanding is beyond the historical dimension to the ultimate dimension and in the ultimate dimension when we recognize everybody's got a mother story you know everybody has some pain and trauma i can work through mine i can let go of it i there's a way for me to do that but it takes penetrating mindfulness radical mindfulness i call it and it's something uh, closely akin to radical acceptance. You radically look, you radically accept what you see without judgment. 
and then the healing can start and then the the maturation can start so i could have talked more but i won't um so my journey basically was one to find a way for my you know it, it was very personal um for me in a way um, but 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 then universal in another and i thought um and so i'd like interested in people's own journeys through the lotus sutra and how they how they how they manage their way through the lotus sutra did they actually work with it um was it an, you know rather than it had rather than an intellectual exercise did they actually work with it and what were the what, what were issues people have all right so i will entertain questions i have a question yes um you were speaking of lotus sutra uh at several points we hear of the reluctance of the buddha yes and we hear that in his uh, this is what happened when he uh had his enlightenment as well mm -hmm. uh he he didn't uh he was not not planning to teach because he didn't think what he thought could be understood and there are other places in the story so it's interesting and i wonder what you make of the buddha having to do his own internal questioning mm -hmm. and working which is not how we usually depict we don't usually depict him and he yeah this that that it actually this is this is almost the untold story, the backstory, you know, that, that the Buddha, first of all, you know, went alone. He, he, he gave, out, gave out teachings very carefully, very slowly. He waited, and I think that in a way, the way that, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it is, you know, the recognition of, first of all, the recognition that you actually are aware enough and mindful enough to be able to see if that teaching is helpful in this, in this particular situation, that you're able to see the readiness of the people that you're talking to. When you, when you actually really focus on somebody, you know, even when you're just having a conversation, they're either with you or not. You, know, you can see people change when they become more or less receptive. Um, there's a ways of intuiting that. That's Sojin's big intuition thing really was, was that. He would look at you with the piercing eyes and he'd see, you'd feel, and Reb did that too, you know, and piercing, and he comes up with this, the answer to me. You know, maybe you should make up another story about that, yeah. <laughs> that enlightenment experience. <laughs> and it wasn't, just that, it wasn't just that he was reluctant, or stingy. Yeah. Um, you know, you get you have this place in the Lotus Sutra where very early on where he's says this is the Lotus Sutra, he presents it, he, right. the beam of light zooms out. Zooms out of him, yeah. Yeah, and five thousand bodhisattvas <laughs> get up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They come back later. Okay, Ross. Thank you, Jerry. Um with regard to uh, the whole world as medicine, I was at Rinso Inn sweeping and there was this red leaf on the ground mm -hmm. and I was so enamored by it, I had to take it. Mm -hmm. So I picked it up and put it in my suitcase and brought it home. And over the subsequent decades or so, it's still on my table, but it's not red anymore. <laughs> and so, uh, but it's still beautiful and it was a lesson in impermanence and change. Right? Yes. And, and so the, the tantalization and the, the grasping turned into an opening and, a, and acceptance. That's how I understood the, yeah. the sutra and uh, yeah. the story. Um, when you were talking about, you know, the page turned mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, like what happened? Like it's one way and then it's all of a sudden another yes. to the teaching. That's kind of like our, our life if we're talking about it in that is this whole lifetime that we're describing it just in a, in a moment. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand your experience, say at Green Gulch? with the, the luminescence coming out of people and the, the dew, and that you probably still see now, I'm assuming, the beauty of people and the yes. yeah. but it, it's the same, but it's different. Yes. Can you say a little bit about the experience and how you have ch changed seeing these experiences in the process of that? Well, in some ways, 
recognizing that heightened awareness um, that we can get when we're, especially when we're sitting for long periods of time, right? If you, if you go out of the Zendo, get your stuff, start making phone calls, looking at your phone, um, you miss the whole point. You know, it's like, you, it's like go out and look at the, look at a blade of grass, you got it. It's there, you know, there's a bird singing as, so, as, as Hosan said, you know, there's a, there's a new flower coming out. There's, it's all around. So living with that period of my life, I had some sort of, I developed a sort of, oh, I forget, and then I remember. Oh, I forget, and then I remember. And I see myself distracting myself, not actually paying attention to who's there or to what's there. And what about the luminescence coming from the phone? So it's not just flowers and pretty things that are poetic, but just the ordinariness of our life. Can we see the luminescence in that and see it as a thread in our practice? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, we carry that light every time we look, we do it, right? We're radiating it. It's contagious. Mindfulness is contagious. Thank you. And we radiate it. Yeah. Judy, I'll get to you. Thanks. For me, what comes up, because the Lotus Sutra is all about imagination, is like, um, near to the burning house, not so much when the parent is outside wondering how to get the kids out, but the experience of being in the burning house with those children. How do those two Wait a minute. Give me, give me the. I'm, I'm in burning house with the kids. But what was the other place? Well, the story talks about how the parent. What the parent did. Yeah, and the parent is getting them to come out of the house. Right. My experience in these times a lot. Ah, okay. Is that we are right there in the burning house? Absolutely. Um, and then, then what to do? What to do if if we're if we're mindful, all and um, we have agency. There are skillful means that we can use to address a particular horror that we see <laughs> of the many every day. Um, but we have we can't do nothing. We can't do nothing. So whether we're helping other beings by teaching the Dharma or helping other beings by um, volunteering somewhere or whatever we're doing, we're doing something. You don't, you don't just, you, I don't think you have to burn up. You could burn up, I mean, metaphorically, but then what? I don't know. I guess, <laughs> I guess to me that's a really important thing, especially around uh, active hope and letting go of outcome, mm -hmm. you know, just that our stillness is wholehearted activity. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, is to not just focus on being out of the house and getting the kids out, but recognizing that the moment that preceded that is being in that house. Mm -hmm. I hold that at the same time that I'm yes. there also. Absolutely. So you know, you know what what we know. We can't get. I don't know how how you can get away from it. But we're we're living in this great universal container of everything that possibly could happen and has happened over and over again. We have that awareness, that too. That's part of the Lotus Sutra by saying, "So what's uh, what's new?" Um, I listened to a George Carlin documentary, I don't know, for those of us who are old enough, but uh, recently, and one of his last gigs was, I don't know why we're so worried about the earth. The earth is not the problem. We are the problem. We think we're so important that we have control over the, uh, the earth and whether the earth will survive or not. He said, we have no control. We can harm, we can do whatever we do and things will happen, but the earth is gonna be around long after 
long after we're gone. So we can't have an ego, what I'm saying is we can't really have an egocentric, like I'm suffering in the middle of all this stuff. It's like suffering is all around me. Everyone is suffering. And all I can do is look for opportunity or be awake enough to find opportunity. But make sure I'm awake enough and I'm mindful enough to find opportunity to create ease and healing, to do some medicine in this horrible time. Okay, go. Thank you, Jerry. Um, we also have a question in the chat when you're ready, or okay. here online, when you're... Okay. Thank you, Jerry. The, uh, the idea of, of, of owning our suffering, recognizing we're in a burning house wasn't part of my question, but it seems very important right now after Judy said it. My question is, you, you mentioned, for example, you saw your father in the back seat, or you recognize the being of Sojin in places uh, by paying attention. Mm -hmm. and my question and my take on, on, on the sutra really is that, like the Buddha, Sojin was there before Sojin was born, and Sojin is there after mm -hmm. Sojin dies. And so when your father's in the back seat, could he not have been in the back seat before you were born? And can you address the idea uh, of being that uh, seems to come out of it, which is, to me, the answer being yes. Uh, yeah. How, how would you uh, experience your father in the backseat before well, you were born? It's just, I mean, it's a realization that there's a, that there's a forever. That there's a forever whatever that is. We don't know it, it's beyond, our, it's beyond our knowing, but there's a forever coming and going. And sometimes we get visits. <laughs> sometimes we get visits if we're lucky. And that's a separate being that we get visits from or how would you describe that? It's probably a creation of my consciousness. <laughs> uh, it might be, or it might be something that triggered me some you know, some memory of some, my father was very funny. You know, he, some funny thing I remember about my dad conjures him right up. It might be just some association, some opening. Um, but as I say, I would go, I went through my, you know, my sister's clothes, I finally gave away my sister's clothes. I had to, I had to get, I had to get rid of them. But, um, but it was wonderful to just, I would put on a jacket and walk around and then I would just, invite her to join me walking around. It's, it's like she's, she's, who knows what she is now, a bird? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we are, uh, uh, we have, we'll do one more because I didn't notice the whoever's on, uh, Peter Overton. Who's in the chat? Hi, Jerry, thank you. Um, I just, uh, just in terms of mindfulness practice, I'm kind of wondering, whether or not you would draw a distinction between the way we understand Shravaka practice in that regard and the way we understand what Thich Han is suggesting. And whether or not we just have different stories about all of that, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, Thich Nhat Han is talking about that Shravaka practice, um, which is fine, right? Which is looking for your own relief from your suffering. There's nothing wrong with shrug, perhaps. It's a step along the way. It, give, it gives us the strength to be able to become a bodhisattva because we're not so suffering anymore. But, but, he, he, but he, doesn't, he says that what's missing in shravaka practice is the deeper mindfulness of recognizing the universal. So instead of the situational, you take it beyond the situ this this current situation, and you take it to the to the realm of the universal, so that so that you see you may be seeing the same historically you're seeing the same event, um, but if you see it in that larger context of the universal, that's that's a whole different way that you're gonna. So where does that where does that frame of reference come from? Ah, this is why this is why I was struggling. This is why I have all the post-it notes. <laughs> Because, because I don't, I can say what I think or what I feel. And, and then you can tell me how that feels for you. For me, it's, it says that you have to keep, you can't rest on your laurels, so to speak. 
just the way I couldn't rest on, uh, Reb wouldn't let me rest on my understanding of a, of a, a koan. You know, no, there's more. No, there's more to know. You know, I'm still curious. I'm still going to look. I'm still, I'm going to look at that koan again tomorrow. And it might be very different understanding. And it is sometimes, right? In a koan. You, you, you hear it a million times and then all of a sudden, wow, oh, I never thought about it that way. So there's another level of understanding which gives you the universal understanding of things are coming and going. Meanings are coming and going. Our understanding is coming and going. That's that's how I hold it. So uh, just to sort of respond, it seems like that that level of investigation, that going beyond the initial investigation, is something which is sort of inherent in mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yes. sort of pay, paid attention. Well, paying, you know, it's like that's why I called it. Ra- I call the talk radical mindfulness because. It really, it really is demanding that we don't settle for the simplicity, you know, the simple first, first couple of rounds. We know that we know that we, you know we have so much conditioning the way we see things. How can you, you know, how can you really believe what you think? Don't believe what you think. That was it, wasn't it? Well, I know, I know. Bumper sticker on my car. Bumper sticker on your car. I knew there was something like that. Or I, what I have, on, you know, by my computer. Um, is a, a big blob, a pig, a big wooden block that says blah blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're having a conversation. What are we talking about? I mean, <laughs> so I can't take it too seriously. Which is why there's, you know, if you get to that point where you can't take it too seriously because you thought of fifteen explanations for the thing, then you can just have it, you can just let it go, you know, it, it, it's lighter then. You're not stuck on something. It's just another thing. Thank another you. Phenomenon. Thank you. Okay, so I think we're... Gary, before you go, could you give us the name the, of the Thich Nhat Hanh book? Yes. Opening the Heart of the Cosmos. <laughs> And then it says, Insights on the Lotus Sutra. And it's wonderful, really. (laughs) So, thank you.